0: It's been a couple of weeks, hasn't it? Yeah. I don't know about you guys, but I've been feeling a little bit just sort of bombarded by the news and things going on. Been finding that I've had a mix of emotions, a um, little bit of anxiety. So this might amuse you. I, I think I probably bought a month's worth of, um, like, what do you call it? Like supplies, like food supplies, <laughs> this last, like prepper style, much to my wife's amusement um, last week. I've had a little bit of sadness, maybe a little denial, a bit of hope. I'm like, okay, our, our court systems are working, as well as some moments of outright anger. I don't know, you may or may not have been feeling some of these things as well, and I'm not too keen to dwell on that stress, but I thought that this morning it might be helpful to do a couple of things. So first I thought it might be helpful to sort of validate some of our feelings about the injustices around us, if you're feeling those things. We talk a whole lot about Jesus here at Blue Ocean Faith and what it means to follow him. And so we're gonna look at a particular story that I think helps reveal God's heart regarding injustice. And then second, I think it might be helpful for some of us to talk about how to find rest in the midst of everything. You know, I like what my friend said, Reverend Mihi Kim Court. She said, you know, this is a marathon, not a sprint. It's a marathon, not a sprint, so we need to think about self-care and finding rest in God as we move forward in speaking out against unjust actions and unjust policies. So there's a story about Jesus that pops up in all four of the Gospels. So it pops up in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which tells us it was an important story to the early followers of Jesus, because not that many stories pop up in all four of them. So I particularly like the account in John because it contains a couple of extra details. And the story is the one about Jesus overturning the money changers tables in the temple. And that story goes something like this. So it's about the year 30 and it's Passover time. So the Jewish Passover is a feast that's celebrated every year. It's celebrated to this day. And so Jesus and some of his friends, they went up to Jerusalem to go and celebrate this holiday. And so while he was there, like most of the Jews of his time, he went to the large temple to worship. And some scholars think that as many as 3 or 400,000 people made the pilgrimage to Jerusalem every year for this feast. Now, this temple in Jerusalem, it was enormous. We're talking it covered like 30 acres. And it was divided into four courts. So when you would walk in, if you can imagine, there's this long, large court that's like large and thin, like long and thin, and it was called the Court of the Gentiles. And that was the place where the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, as well as the foreigners could go into worship. And so it goes down the length of the temple. And then if you went over to the right and you walked down like a football field's length and turned up that way, you would go into a place called Solomon's Porch. And that was a little area where Jesus would sometimes teach. And then from Solomon's Porch, you could go into these other courtyards. So first was the courtyard of the women. So that's where the Jewish women could go and worship. Inside of that was the courtyard of the men, sometimes called the court of Israel, where the Jewish men could go worship. Inside of that was the courtyard for the priests, where the priests could go and worship. And then within that courtyard of the priests, you had like the altar where they would do the sacrifices. And then there was like a porch that led into a place called the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies was thought to be the, the place where the presence of God would reside. And only one person, the high priest, could go in there every year, just one time a year. And that Holy of Holies was surrounded by this giant curtain, right? So this temple that Jesus goes into, it gets increasingly exclusive as you move inward. Now, this is a a little commentary. You know, when when Jesus died, so the, the Christian perspective on this is that when Jesus died, we're told that that curtain to the Holy of Holies tore, right? And so that curtain that was blocking access to the presence of God tore open, essentially saying that this exclusive nature is no longer at play, that God's presence has been released into all of the world for everyone to access. But when Jesus comes to the temple on this day, that hasn't happened yet. And so he walks into that first courtyard where everybody is allowed to enter, this court of the Gentiles. And in the court, he found that there were sheep and there were cattle and there were doves and pigeons and there were tons and tons of tables set up where the money changers were. John 2 says, So he made a whip out of cords and he drove them all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and he overturned their tables. And to those who sold doves, he says, get out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. Now, I think there are a couple of layers of interpretation to this story to pay attention to. And the first one I think gives us sort of an obvious interpretation of what's happening. And that's that Jesus was angry because the merchants were selling things in a place of worship, right? They were profiting excessively off of something that should be sacred. And that when you went to the temple to make sacrifices, you might be coming from quite a distance. I mean, even Jesus, where he grew up, would probably walk two or three days down to the temple. Some people were coming from other parts of the Roman Empire. And so you might only have Roman currency or other foreign currencies with you. However, when you got to the temple, you were only allowed to use the Hebrew currency, the shekel. Right, so you had to go in there with your Roman currency or foreign currency and you had, to, you had to exchange it for shekels and then use the shekels to buy a lamb or a goat or if you were too poor for a lamb or a goat, you'd buy two doves or two pigeons. Right, so these merchants had set up shops to accommodate these sacrificial needs so that people didn't have to bring animals with them from far away. And so in some ways that makes a lot of sense to me. Right, they, were, they were filling this need and it was like a need of, of convenience for people. But the accounts in Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have Jesus saying to the merchants, my house is a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. Which tells us that the merchants were likely profiting unjustly off of this system of convenience, right? They were taking advantage of people. A second layer to pay attention to is that the merchants were setting up shop in the court of the Gentiles, right? So they weren't setting up shop outside of the temple before people went in, but they were setting up inside Now, I was reading, this was a few years ago, a couple of the early church theologians, two of them um, named Heraclean and Origen. And Origen has been really helpful in bringing something to light about this story for me. So he said, those found in the temple selling the oxen and the sheep and the doves and the money changers, they represent those who give nothing away free, but they suppose the entrance of foreigners into the temple to be a matter of merchandise and profit. Right, so what they're saying that what Jesus was really mad at was that people were deliberately keeping the foreigners from having space to worship, in addition to trying to profit off of them as they came into that holy space, right? So it's like when they saw the foreigners, they were like, oh good, money, instead of, oh, please come worship with us, you're welcome here, right? So it was doubly offensive. And I think that this is worth paying attention to, this idea that Jesus was furious because the people were preventing outsiders from experiencing worship. My house is a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. makes a whole lot of sense when you realize that the merchants were quite literally keeping people from being a part of the worship community of the temple. And this was a big deal to Jesus. I mean, if you wanna see what makes God mad in scripture, taking advantage of the poor and mistreating the foreigners in the land are themes that run throughout scripture. And I really can't emphasize them enough. And it begins all the way back in the law of Moses in Deuteronomy 10, It says, for the Lord, your God is a God of gods and a Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and he loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. He loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. He's saying to the Hebrew people, you, you know what it's like to be an outsider. You know what it's like to be a second-class citizen. You know what it's like to be a slave. You know what it's like to be oppressed. When you go and you set up your own society, you don't turn around and do this to other people. Proverbs 29, seven says, the righteous care about justice for the poor, but the wicked have no such concern. Neglecting the oppressed and the poor and the foreigner are the very things that the prophet Jeremiah and others said caused the Israelites to be exiled in the land of Babylon for 70 years. And Jeremiah, he's warning the Israelites here. This is before they've been exiled. He says, This is what the Lord says to you do what is just and right. Rescue from the hand of the oppressor the one who has been robbed. Do no wrong or violence to the foreigner to the fatherless or to the widow and do not shed innocent blood in this place. But if you do not obey these commands, declares the Lord, I swear by myself that this palace will become a ruin. Now, I don't think that Jeremiah is saying that God is going to like strike a lightning bolt down on that palace. But I think what he's saying is that that palace, like the natural consequence to neglecting the poor and the oppressed and the foreigners is that things will not go well for them. And in some ways, I think that this could be just as pertinent to our culture here today, right? If this is what the Lord is saying to America, do what is just and right. Rescue from the hand of the oppressor, the one who has been robbed. Do no wrong or violence to the foreigner, to the fatherless or to the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place. As yet another unarmed African-American man was shot this week. It's like in the words of the book of the Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. I found myself reading the first three chapters of that book this week. There's nothing new under the sun. What has been done before is done now and will be done again. And so, the Gospel of John here, he's inviting us to imagine Jesus deliberately making a whip. So, I looked up on YouTube, like, how to make a whip. How do you make a bull whip? There's some weird stuff on there. <laughs> people who say you can do it out of just masking tape. I don't know. (laughs) Um, I know, but just imagining Jesus walking into this courtyard and he looks around and he sees what's happening. And he sees that the poor and the foreigners are being exploited. And he just felt like a seething anger in his heart, right? And so he set out and he set out with purpose to go and find some leather cords. You can imagine him walking to different places, trying to find who's got some and then him sitting down there and taking those cords and braiding them. A deliberate act. And as he's braiding them, he's feeling himself fill with a righteous anger. And then he took that whip that he made and it says he drove them all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. This is a big area. And he scattered the coins of the money changers and he overturned their tables. And the grammar of the Greek which text, it makes it clear that Jesus drove the sheep and the cattle with the whip, right? He wasn't driving the people with the whip. A Few interpreters have tried to use this passage to justify using violence against others. And if you Google for real, if you Google this story, you'll see like pictures of Jesus with this long whip, like whipping people. That, it, that is not the correct or accurate interpretation of the passage. So, you know, please don't go out and get all Indiana Jones in your senator's offices. <laughs> <laughs> Rachel was joking with me. She's like, dun-da-dun-da, dun-da-da. Dun, da, oh, yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> I didn't have them sing along. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's probably the good thing. But in the Gospels of Mark and John, that word that's used there for drove, like Jesus drove them out of the temple... It's the same word that's used for the Holy Spirit driving Jesus into the desert when he went out to fast. And it's the same word that's used for like the driving out of demons, right? So it's a really forceful word that implies that Jesus was moved by the spirit of God rather than by any kind of physical strength, right? It was like the spirit was rising within him and leading him. And the spirit can use anger to enact change because anger is the correct response to injustice. You know, some of us have been taught that anger is bad and it's something that we need to tamp down, which isn't usually the best way to handle anger. You know, becoming angry in some cases is the right course of action, and we call this a righteous anger in our tradition. And this righteous anger, it's not the kind of like uncontrolled anger that hurts your relationship with like your spouse or your kids or your colleagues. It's not the kind of anger that's like overwhelming and and just um, controlling you. It's a constructive anger. And it's this constructive anger that we see Jesus harness and he turns it into a deliberate prophetic act to go out and point out the injustices happening in his community. And I think that we also are invited to create those sorts of acts that point out the injustices in our community and to create works of art and pieces of music and film and all sorts of other things. So my personal challenge has been, and still is, I think how to let anger drive me to help change injustices, but not let the anger rule me, right? That's the question. How can it drive you, but not rule you? So I've told this story over um, probably two or three times in the course of my preaching, and so I apologize if it's a repeat, but I think it's one that some of you could find helpful. And this is like almost 10 years ago now. I was going and I was doing some work in one of the the poorest parts of the world. It may even be the poorest part of the world. And I saw some some pretty difficult things. And one of those was we were on a bus kind of driving through a deserty area and our bus got a flat tire. So while we were waiting for the driver to change it, a couple of my friends and I, we kind of wandered off the side of the road and there were some grass huts there in the desert. And a lasting picture for me, was I met this mother with this small child And it was a child with a bloated belly and it was just covered with flies and it was dying. And so my friend who was with me, she was a German nurse. She bent down and she was trying to care for the child. But as we walked away, she's like, that that child's gonna die. Mostly because of just poverty and lack of access to healthcare. We were far away from anything that could help the kid. And that just like really stuck with me. And we had some other experiences of being robbed and threatened. And you know, when the police came, they were like demanding giant bribes from us. And I thought, gosh, I'm dealing with this for like a few months of my life. But there are people for whom this is life every day, day after day. And so when I came back to the US for a time after that, I was really deeply angry with God. And I wondered if God could possibly be good if humans on this planet suffer so much. I mean, like, what's the point of suffering like that? And if God exists, if he or she is out there and if he or she is so powerful, why do people hurt? And like, why can't God come in and help? Or does God just not want to help, right? These were the questions and I still don't know that I necessarily have answers to those questions. I may never, but I think I've got a little different perspective that was helped along by a little connection I had with God. So I remember being really angry with God for quite a while and not feeling like I was able to pray for quite a few months. And then one day, I, I wasn't even praying or doing anything special. I was just in the kitchen, and I was making cookies, right? So I bend down, and I, I pull out the drawer from underneath the, uh, the oven, you know, like where you keep your cookie sheets. And as I'm coming up, it was like I heard this voice behind me, I mean, in my head, but kind of behind me, saying, instead of being angry at me, why don't you try being angry with me? Instead of being angry at me, why don't you try being angry with me? And that flipped the script for me. You know, it's what Cassie described when she preached a couple of weeks ago when she was talking about a manual prayer. And she was saying how so often whenever she's praying, she feels like God's able to just sort of slip something in that helps reframe a situation for her to see it a little bit differently. And that's what this voice did. I felt like it invited me to imagine God as just as angry and just as upset at the injustices instead of being the source of them. And then I felt like he invited me to help harness some of that anger to drive change and imagine him actually running beside me and empathizing with me in that. And so what I think I've learned is that we're actually tapping into like the very heart of God for the oppressed and the suffering when we're feeling these things with him. And that this is really a key aspect of God's character that he hates injustice and suffering. So if you're one who's inclined to feel like you shouldn't let anger be part of, you know, everything that's going on, I would just offer to you that your anger may, in fact, be God-given. And we're responsible for what we do with that anger, and not everything that we w- might want to do is productive or helpful. Putting on our Indiana Jones hat, like I keep wanting to do. <laughs> but that the anger itself is okay. All right. Now, Ken and I have been talking with each other a little bit about this church and about our role in fighting injustices. And I I think we're both on the same page in this. So I don't know how many of you guys read about the national prayer gathering that happened this last week that the president was at. Well, one of the things that he said was that he was promising to get rid of and totally destroy, his words, the Johnson Act. So you may or may not know that churches and other faith communities are tax exempt for property taxes. Like we pay employment taxes, but we don't pay property taxes. That's part of the separation of church and state. And so what the Johnson Act did was it said that since places of worship, like us, don't pay property taxes, we shouldn't be allowed to endorse political candidates. We shouldn't be allowed to take in money from people and then also give that money to political candidates. It's not fair to the American taxpayer to effectively have churches subsidizing political campaigns. I think it's a good and fair law. So I just want to say, just for the record, that if the Johnson Act goes away, that I will never endorse a political candidate from the pulpit and that our church will never endorse political candidates and our church money will never be given to political campaigns and that we have theological reasons for that. We certainly have pastoral reasons for doing that and then I just have concerns about it as a private citizen. But that being said, we will be speaking out against injustices as will Ken and the others who preach and we'll speak out against authoritarianism from the pulpit when necessary. We won't be talking politics all the time but when it comes up, we'll do that. I'll protest, probably with my clergy collar on, one of the few times I put it on, and we'll train people happily in the Christian tradition of nonviolent resistance, that both Ken and I are of that tradition in our own ways, and it is a long and deep and rich tradition. I have thought, also thought it might be helpful to offer a little bit of perspective to you this morning, just on churches and social justice in the United States. So you might hear something um, called the social gospel. Have any of you guys heard of that? Yeah, a few of you nodding. It kind of got a bad rap in some circles. What what I mean by the social gospel is like a reading of scripture that embraces and emphasizes the importance of social justice on the Jesus path. That says that if we're not seeking to help liberate the oppressed, then the gospel's lost its power and we've actually missed one of the main points of the biblical narrative. So Christianity at its worst bolsters oppression. And Christianity, at its best, drives social change. And Christianity, as we well know, has been used to justify terrible things. We don't have to go as far back as the Crusades to see that. You know, things like upholding apartheid in South Africa, justifying oppressing Palestinians in Israel, justifying slavery and Jim Crow laws and white supremacy in our own country, justifying oppression of women everywhere, and bolstering all sorts of unjust systems. Hi, Maurice. But Christianity has also been used to dismantle these systems. Christianity has been used to dismantle these unjust systems. And many black churches in the 20th century embraced the social gospel and they did so effectively, filled with the Spirit of God. I'm still learning from that tradition. Some of the white Protestants also embraced the social gospel, but there was, they they somehow got a little bit of a bad rap. And I know in like the circles I grew up in, people just sort of equated like working for social justice as being sort of liberal and not knowing anything about Jesus, which is not fair at all. But that was sort of the rap that it got. So our hope for Blue Ocean Faith is that we can embrace the best of the social gospel while remaining centered on Jesus and infused with the spirit of Jesus. And that we'll be able to learn from our brothers and sisters That we'll be able to learn from our brothers and sisters in the African-American church, and the Native American church, and the Latin American church, and in many other places and spaces where people who have been oppressed have grappled with what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And at the same time, we can find our source and our strength and our peace and our refilling in the resurrected and living Jesus through his spirit that brings us comfort. Because it is exhausting sometimes to do the work of justice. It's exhausting to have all of these feelings that the news is popping at us. And it's exhausting to have more added to our lives. Like we're busy, people are busy, you're busy. And now we're adding in these like social action groups or calling our senators or writing letters or protesting if you're into all of that. And so how do we take care of ourselves? And again, as my friend, me, said, she said it's a marathon, not a sprint. And that you can't do everything. You know, like running, you've got to kind of pace yourself or you're going to want to like just go off track a few miles in. So first I would say, do what you can and not what you can't. You know, that we can't try to do everything. That we like to say here at Blue Ocean, it's all about connection, right? It's about connection to God, ourselves, each other, and the world. I believe that's true. And one way you can connect to yourself is to know and to understand your own limits. And you could do something simple, maybe something like what Ken does, where he's just built in a five minute habit into his daily life of calling representatives. It's doable, it's sustainable. For me, I'm like trying to take one action a day, whatever that action is, whether it's donating money to the ACLU or making phone calls or whatever it is. The second thing is to nurture friendships that are mutual in nature, right? Meaning that there's not like one side that's doing more of the giving. You know, like a friendship that's like really sustaining you so that you can really renew and stay true to your particular call, right? Connecting to each other, joining grassroots groups, working for justice is really bolstering. I know like Ken's starting one, February 19th, that I think you heard in the announcements, but Faith in Action down at Fraser's Pub if you wanna join that. Third, pick an issue or two and focus on just one or two if that helps, you know, it can be a little bit overwhelming to think of, oh my gosh, there's so many different things between mental health funding and healthcare and education and LGBTQ rights and on and on. You know, just focus on what ignites your passion because that will keep you running over the long haul. Fourth, relax and exercise. Fifth, listen and learn. You know, Ken and I decided to use Howard Thurman's um, classic book, Jesus and the Disinherited, as the inspiration for our Lenten sermon series. I know, I think one of our small groups actually read that together. Caroline's group did that one. Um, You know, there's a, a rich tradition of social justice theology that we can learn from, and we thought, you know, like what better time to really delve into that as a congregation than right now? And then, last but certainly not least, pray. You know, I know I'm a pastor, I'm supposed to say that, but you know, there's a reason that we've been doing all of this Emmanuel prayer training all through January and practicing meditation and silence as a congregation. And while we spend every Lent, which is coming up soon, on particular prayer practices to get us praying every single day because prayer is the real life source, right? When we're connecting to Jesus or to God, however you imagine God, this God who is love, you will be guided and comforted. And you can ask Jesus, where do I focus? He'll tell you when to rest, when to run. He can fill you up with strength and endurance. So we're gonna spend a little bit of extra time this morning um, during our, our guided meditation here just letting Jesus just sort of refill us. So what we like to do if you're new here is we usually take two or three minutes of either silence or guided meditation. And it doesn't have to be perfectly silent. You know, people, babies make noise and that's totally fine. But what we'll do is I'm actually going to give you some verbal cues of some things to imagine. So what we'll do first is just kind of get comfortable, slow down your breathing. You don't have to do this if you don't want, but you are welcome. Pay attention to your body, how it's feeling, places of tension. Maybe just take some really slow, deep breaths to relax yourself. I invite you to imagine the court of the Gentiles that we were talking about in the story. This outer court of the temple that Jesus would go in. And as you're conjuring it up, it's it's been cleared out already of any of the money changers and the animals. You're just walking in there and it's quiet, you're alone. Pay attention. What's the weather like? Is it cloudy? Sunny? Anything particular that you see or smell around you? Are you sitting? Are you standing? Are you walking? Now imagine there's some people there with you, and you can let your mind bring whomever to mind. I was thinking particularly of, imagining some of the people who are oppressed here. Maybe imagine some Muslims, LGBTQ, other foreigners. Feel free to add in people in your life or your work who are causing you stress or whom you're worried about. And just look at them, start to see them, see their faces. And as you look on them, just ask the spirit of love to fill you with love for them. The Bible says that God loves the foreigner in the land and he gives them food and clothing. Breathe in, just breathe in love for them and breathe out anxiety. Now, if you can. Try to imagine Jesus in the scene. Pay attention to where he is, anything he's doing, people he's maybe touching or not. standing and looking on or intermingling. Maybe see if he has anything to say. And if he doesn't, that's okay, but we'll just give it a little space Some of you may find that you feel like sometimes feelings will come up like you want to cry. There's a long tradition in the Christian faith of calling that intercession where you start to sort of cry or cry out on behalf of another. And that's nothing to be afraid of, but it's actually kind of considered a kind of a special, um, especially powerful form of prayer. When we weep on behalf of others. Jesus, I ask that your Holy Spirit would just open our hearts, Lord. That we would really just be birthed with a heart to care for people and to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. God, we ask that you would give us wisdom to know when we need to slow down and rest and when we need to push. We ask for your supernatural power and backing, Lord, as we speak out on behalf of people who are being oppressed. We ask, God, that we would experience you with us. that instead of being mad at you, Lord, that we'll feel you mad with us. And that you'll be the source of our love and our strength. In the name of your son, Jesus, amen.